You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on diversity, inclusion, and understanding for Black cultures through conversations that help us connect to ourselves and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I'm your host, Monique Russell. Today in my guest chair, I have Dr. Lorenzo Hughes, who I say he's known for his data to transform cultures from underperforming to thriving. He is passionate about seeing marginalized groups succeed, and that's really, really what we want to learn more about here today. He's a senior manager for school support and equitable practices. Dr. Hughes, welcome to the show. Monique, thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. It's good just talking with you. I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have. Thank you. Tell me about it. Anytime I could get some expertise on how to have difficult conversations and make workspaces great, I get very excited. Dr. Hughes, one of the reasons I really wanted to get your insight is because I want to learn from leaders like yourself who've gone beyond the need to identify a space for having an equitable workplace, but who are actually embodying the practice of equitable inclusion. So what's the story behind why this work is so important to you? Well, even more now than ever, because we are living in such a polarized society where uh, racism, anti-racism, um, uh, marginalization of people, counseling of people become much more prevalent. And so it's important for this work to make sure that we are highlighting uh, structural inequities that have existed and allowed for their perpetuation of marginalization and to disadvantage certain groups of individuals. And so even in my career, I am a lifelong educator. Uh, my mission is to help to empower those people who have actually been marginalized all their lives. And so starting with students at the youngest of ages, uh, I've been a teacher, I've been an assistant principal, principal, an assistant superintendent of schools prior to get into this role. And in each one of those roles, trying to empower the students so they can get at the table, right? If you're not at the table, then more than likely you're on the menu. And so we need for our uh, kids to make sure that they are uh, lifting up their voice and that we're celebrating uh, everyone and not just tolerating them. Uh, and so they get into the space and that they have equal opportunity to realize their entire potential. And so you know, that, that is what centers the work. And um, we just need to let people know they do have a voice, you know, and it makes a difference to speak up. Mm, that just has me in all sorts of curiosity when I hear you say that. I'm curious to know, like, what's your empowerment story? Like, who empowered you? Who gave you a voice? Well, it wasn't until I was actually in my hmm, sophomore, junior year of undergrad at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, Go Hawks. 
uh, when I was doing a student teaching internship. Um, I had a very ideal upbringing, and I will say a Huxtable upbringing, and that was the Huxtables, because that story did teach us a whole lot about family and what family, you know, can be, right? Um, and so I did come up in a household that had a firm faith foundation. I knew who my father was. I knew who my mother was. You know, I knew who all my siblings were and they were all there. There were no, you know, one-offs, two-offs. Um, and so with that, you know, I had a family structure such that, you know, we had dinner together every night. We went to, to church. We did family things together. We respected uh, one another. So when I went to college, actually, I was a pre-law major. Uh, in undergrad. And I will never forget a lady from the community asking me to consider education. And I was like, no, I want to be an attorney because I do eventually want to be a Supreme Court justice. And so I thought, you know, let me just go ahead and try this education thing out. And so when I did my teaching internship, I ran into some students who said things like, you know, I didn't sleep last night. You know, I haven't seen my mom, my dad. And that was that was shocking to me. I thought that everyone lived the life that I lived to understand that, you know, everyone did not have that. I didn't worry about food. I didn't worry about, you know, money. I never went to bed hungry. The lights were never turned off. And to realize that that is not everyone's experience. I, I pursued, you know, education and 27 years later, I'm still actually doing education and trying to do everything to try to level the playing field so that everyone has every opportunity to do it. And so that's why equity work is important, realizing that everybody doesn't have the background to, you know, to show up as they need to in their most authentic selves and have the tools they need to advocate for themselves. And so I think that everybody should have a life such as that. And so that's why it makes my work so important. Who gave me my voice? My parents gave me a voice. Uh, I always knew that I was loved by my parents. I'm the youngest of six siblings. All of my older siblings, they all took care of me. I knew that my voice mattered. You know, when I went to school, my voice was always heard. You know, I was in the Student Government Association. I, you know, I was the assistant um, uh, student rep to the Board of Education. Incidentally, my brother was the rep. I was the, uh, the assistant rep. But I always had a voice. I'll never forget in high school, um, we didn't like the lunches. The lunches were yuck. Right. And so, you know, we went to the administration. They were like, you know, suck it up, buttercup. This is what you have. We actually staged a protest. It was a very peaceful protest. We got the students to brown bag it. We went for about three weeks without students buying lunch, which cut into the profits. And finally, you know, the superintendent then and the food service director came and met with a group of students. And we were able to get a salad bar at our school. We were actually also able as a senior privilege to be able to go out and leave for lunch. But I always knew that I had a voice. And if I wanted something, I spoke up about it. Now, of course, I always did in a respectful way because coming up in a, you know, a, a, with a church background, holiness that is Pentecostal, you know, you, you didn't question authority, but I knew that my voice mattered. And I'm trying to give that now to, um, especially to students. Mm, oh my goodness. Protesting from lunch. <laughs> So I find this so inspiring and so riveting um, because, you know, I, I grew up watching that Huxtable show too. And, you know, everybody who thinks about it, hears about it, has feelings of nostalgia or feelings of warmth and comfort. It's a great representation of what a Black family can look like, is like um, in our in our world. And so because you were, your eyes were open to the fact that not everybody had the same opportunity as you, that stirred up the fire for you to say, okay, just because I'm okay and someone else may not be, let me use my voice, let me use my privilege, let me lose my influence to create that space for others. I know that sometimes when we think about 
doing this in our workspaces, it doesn't feel as though it's that easy. And so you've been in this work for over 20 something years. You've taught at every level in the academic arena. What would you say um, is the greatest area of struggle for someone who is trying to foster or maintain an equitable workspace or work culture? What what are the the struggles that you encounter or observe from grown-ups, adults who are trying to be equitable leaders, but they're facing difficulty? Well, again, in, in the current political climate that we have, we have people who are more uh, forthright with regard to their belief that we need to not interrupt the status quo, that we need to make sure that we maintain our place, and that is not the case. We have those who feel like, you know, since Barack Obama has been president, there is no more racism, that we're a post-racial society, and, you know, we don't have to worry about uh, that anymore. And so, you know, having to, you know, have the hard conversations with regard to that these things still exist and to help people begin to see how there are structures that have been put in place to create the inequities and that what we're seeing right now. The color of law, you know, uh, Rothenstein did an excellent job of talking about even how the Constitution itself sets up things such that we have things like redlining, that, you know, we have those things that actually disadvantage certain populations. And so having those conversations and coming to the table to expose that and helping people to really look at that for the truth that it is. One of my colleagues, actually, Dr. Uh, Heidi uh, Oliver Ogilvie, actually started during the pandemic when we were remote. She is uh, in her professional capacity as the executive director of professional growth and development, started a series of lunch and learns where we began to start looking at things like that. And of course, with George Floyd, it fueled people wanting to come together and have conversations. And so it's been interesting watching these group of professionals who come voluntarily. Actually, it it started during their lunch hour to have these hard conversations and to watch them evolve and have an awareness. There have been several stories shared uh, by our colleagues of various races about how they have uh, been able to see, and of course, the George Floyd incident helping us to see it, right? Because we were in a situation where because we could not move and because it was right there for us and because it was so blatant, that opened our eyes to having other conversations about how this sort of thing exists in all aspects of society and not just with police brutality, but with housing, but with the lending, you know, and leading to the opportunity gap, which leads to the achievement gap and how curricula is structured and who is represented within the curriculum, whose perspective is being shared versus those who are not. And so being able to facilitate that conversation and see people have the aha moment and the, the awakening, and then now becoming the ambassador and actually, you know, using their voice. And so it's not just, you know, those who from a particular race or group that's having this conversation, but everyone having it and being able to see it. So it's it's helping people to challenge their assumptions mm. about that and making sure that we're able to push through and have those hard conversations. And it's very important. And one of the postures that we take, and I take it in a professional capacity because we work with a diverse population, right? We don't believe in calling people out, but calling them in. And, and making sure that we have an entry point so that we can have the conversation. And even though it can be a hard conversation, we can have it and we can disagree and not be disagreeable. It takes a skilled facilitator in order to have that conversation, all right, and help people to see themselves. Because the last thing you want to is to offend and shut down the conversation, but help them to see and build their capacity to move through it. Because think about it, for those people who, who come from families who 
think that the status quo is the thing to to be. And, you know, my parents, my grandparents are saying this over and over again, to have somebody to interrupt your thinking, that's hard. It is. It right? is. But coaching them through that, right? And instead of me making them feel bad about what it is, just giving them a greater awareness and helping them to uh, reposition their thinking and how we can move forward. So you have said so many things that have my brain going in multiple directions um, because the hard conversations require work. They require energy. They require thoughtfulness. They require intentionality. And as I listen to you talk about that major challenge that you encounter, it really falls around that aspect of, you know, denial or disbelief, not being aware of the reality of the current situation that the structural racism does exist and that it expands to multiple avenues or areas. And when I say denial, I am going to use the acronym that I heard from Dr. Spalding. And and that's, I don't even notice, notice that I'm lying to myself, right? I don't even notice. That means it's in the, in the subconscious and you're not aware of it. So you're in a disbelief and you're trying to create this process of, facilitating awareness. But then you talked about this voluntary lunch and learns, people signing up to have their thinking shaken, people signing up to have their thinking and their perspective expanded. And it sounded like it began with some of the stories and the the incidences like, you know, George Floyd's uh, death. And so it began with those stories to open up, to move from an awakened perspective to an ambassador. I heard you say they became champions, they became advocates, and they started to take on a more active role. So my question to you around this is, when you're doing this work, and you're facilitating this perspective shift, you mentioned that it was a skill, it's a skilled facilitator can do this. And I find that this is where a lot of people tend to struggle. Because if you don't have those skill sets, The conversation can shut down. The conversation can actually be set back. My question is twofold. I want you to talk about this skill and how you've developed the skill or how you help people to develop these skills and then how you help them to exercise the skill without being drained because hard conversations require a lot of energy. You know, conflict is an energy um, drainer for people who are not used to it or even people who are used to it. So how do you keep them, you know, enlightened and skilled up while not being physically, emotionally, or mentally drained? So in my professional capacity, as you said, I'm the senior manager for school support and equitable practices in Anne Arundel County Public Schools, Annapolis, Maryland, just outside of DC. We have about 85,000 students, 128 schools. And from the Office of Equity and Accelerated Student Achievement, where I sit, um, we actually have equity leads. So a stipend staff member in each one of our schools. And we do a train-the-trainer model in actually providing professional development because our district and around the county public schools have quarterly PDs where half a day, once a quarter, 
uh, students are dismissed early and we do a three hour PD with our staff. In fact, we just had one this past Wednesday. Um, and so what we say to our equity leads is to be bold, be brave and be skilled. And so being bold is understanding that the conflict is going to come. It's not a matter of if, but when it comes. So you need to be bold about it. One of the, our protocols that we have is for them to lean in. And we ask for them to seek understanding and to listen and to listen for understanding and not don't listen to respond. Because for those people who only had you know, one way of thinking and trying to interrupt that thinking, you know, it is going to take some time to listen, to hear their perspective and then invite them to challenge their thinking and their assumptions by giving them some some other examples. It's almost like the stereotype threat and, and the stereotypes that we have, that there are certain professions that belong to certain genders, right? And so we can interrupt that stereotype when I show them a female worker on a construction site breastfeeding her newborn child. That is a charge to the psyche so that we interrupt that. In giving them some training, we do a lot with uh, the work for Learning for Justice, which has a lot of uh, strategies that gives them, you know, about, you know, speaking up. And so when someone says something that is offensive and that can offend, that you begin to question. And so when someone says something to the effect of, you know, only people with braids are smart. All right. So that would be, of course, offensive to me because my braids are not as long as yours. Right. <laughs> so if I ask them a question, what makes you say that? What information do you have? It's sort of we want us to slow down our thinking. And so by asking questions, by interrupting, another strategy that they use is the echoing skills. So it might be that there's someone within the group who feels marginalized and discounted. And, you know, a Black woman may be offended and may say something, right? And so it's important for someone else to echo so you don't feel like you're out there alone. And that echoing doesn't necessarily have to come from another Black woman. It could come from a white man, right? It could come from somebody else who is differently abled, right? But echoing. Um, so those are some of the strategies that we actually give uh, to, to them to actually have the conversation. Uh, another thing, too, is that we tend to use text as a basis for discussion. Case scenarios are good, too, as we give some sort of a scenario and we talk about why things are the way that they are. Um, I'm thinking of a, a book and we actually just use it. And then the title, of course, escapes me. I won't be able to think about it now. It, it gives various uh, scenarios and we use that as a basis for discussion. So we, we focus on the text and the rich content within the text and why things are happening to again, challenge the thinking. And then we begin to talk about various things about, you know, whether it's race, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's class, whether it's um, uh, people and their physical or intellectual ability. So using that text makes it less threatening because it's, it, it's the entry point, right? How do I get to the conversation? Because if I come to you and I say to you, you're a racist, well, of course, that's going to, you know, hijack the amygdala, right, of the brain. And so because I don't feel safe, I'm going to shut down. But if I use a story and we talk about that, there's a side way in which I can come into that and actually have the conversation. It's not necessarily me centering somebody's feelings or centering someone's comfort, right? But if I shut them down and we don't have the conversation, then we don't get anywhere. We need to make sure that we're consistently moving the conversation. And going back to the lunch and learns, that actually evolved because, of course, when we were virtual, you know, we had that lunch break where people would be, you know, sitting there eating, but that is still happening because people wanted more after we went back. And so now we have social justice and soft drinks. And so they come in at five o'clock and we're still doing it virtually. We just did that on Thursday night and Dr. Uh, Ogilvie is still having in that conversation. And we have a wonderful partnership. And I also have to lift up my immediate supervisor, Dr. Maisha Gillens, 
we talk about ways of helping to build our staff capacity, not just in the uh, the teaching realm, but we have facilities as well. We've you know we've got operations, and those people need to have that conversation. And one of the things I want to lift up with regard to building our staff's capacity is that the conversations around the lunch and learns has gotten so rich until Dr. Ogilvy has now created a social justice, anti-racist leadership lending library. And with Title II funds has curated over 200 titles of books dealing with anti-racism and race. She wants people to come check the books out. She wants them to highlight. She wants to mark them up. We've had several book studies. We've had uh, Bettina Love, who's, who has come in uh, and talked about her book, uh, Gildy Muhammad, uh, who, who has come in and talked with them. So we've had various authors to help us come and talk about it. Matt Kay, teacher in Philadelphia uh, Public Schools, and he his book focuses on having conversations about race. And we've had several teachers, he's actually come down and worked with our staff to have conversations in the classroom to structure those conversations and have productive conversations and one of the things that we like about, about Matt Kay and the professional development that he's led is helping them to see how to have a good conversation that continues versus one that shuts down. And he is masterful at using various examples and news clips where it becomes a shouting match and unproductive versus actually having the conversation and giving our students the skill to have the conversation. And what we're finding, Monique, a lot of times from the staff members who are coming to the social justice and soft drinks and to the uh, lunch and learns, a lot of time our teachers are coaching up because they have more capacity and more efficacy around having the conversations around race, racism, marginalization um, than some of some of the leaders. Um, and so they're actually coaching up and saying, you know, we need to look at this. The beautiful thing about that, too, because we are a learning institution, is that even our students have come on board. And during the pandemic, they started a series called Let's Talk Justice. If you go to the Anne Arundel County uh, Public Schools website and look at Let's Talk Justice, you will see where our students are leading conversations around race. And one wow. of the beautiful things is the high school led conversations with their parents in tow. And we used So You Want to Talk About Race. So, so having the students lead the conversations with their parents beside them, right? And the students have become empowered as a result of that, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We're in so the second. I, wanna, I, I just want to say this because you are giving so many practical solutions, practical tactics, practical ideas. And when you talked about managing up, I think about how this is applicable in the workplace, especially in the, in the corporate workspace as well, uh, because sometimes the leaders don't have that closeness to the day-to-day -day interactions, the day-to-day, -day, you know, um, politics or conflict or uh, discussions around anything that could cause um, you to shut down. And I especially appreciate the fact that you have taken a position that no, it's not about centering someone's feelings because that's been an ongoing debate. And really this show is about moving that conversation forward, having the productive conversations, leaning in. You gave us some strategies around how to challenge the psyche, how to disrupt that uh, regular thinking, how to investigate the thought. I love the echo. Hello. Like I'm just always going to think about <laughs> the echo, 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 echo. You know, you could just always going to see that. And to the point where you now have, you have this 
um, from managing up, manage in the middle, managing down towards the students, getting them involved to lead conversations with their parents. It's really not even just about race. It's about being able to lean into the difficult conversations. You talked about a book study and this library of over 200 plus titles. And that made me think about um, something that I read when I was preparing for this interview with you about how you led a book study with a group of young Black boys. And there was something that popped out where the feedback was that school should be like this. School should be like this. I want you to drive a little bit into the tactics of that book study experience because it's, it's common in the academia world, but I really want to see how we can learn from what's working in academia and map it on over to the corporate learning environment. So if you could dive a little bit into the into the tactics of what that book study looked like to get that type of feedback, school should be like this, that would be great. So I am a teacher at heart. When I was a teacher, I taught uh, middle and high school. And uh, this fall, Dr. Nicole Gale, who is the director of the University of Maryland Eastern Shore Upper Bound Program, reached out to me and asked me if I would lead a book study with just Black boys who are in the uh, Upper Bound Program uh, on Maryland's Lower Eastern Shore, Somerset County and uh, Wicomico County. And I thought, do I want to give up a Saturday uh, once a month for an entire year to do this and decided actually to do that? And it's been a wonderful experience. And so about two hours a Saturday a month, I go down and meet with these young men. We are using uh, Hill Harper's letter to a young brother. And the fascinating thing about this, as I shared with the young men a couple sessions ago, is that this book was actually written before they were born in 2005, which is not that long ago. Um, in which he just, you know, he's literally having letters to, to young brothers. I've structured it such that, first of all, when we meet, we, we meet in a circle. I, you know, we all are sitting in a circle. And, and during every session, I make sure that I feature a young Black boy. And I'm saying boy because too many times our Black boys are adultified. So I'm not being disrespectful because I'm not going to call them young men. Right now they're boys and we need to treat them as such. But I go in respectfully. We always start off. I let them know that, you know, I want us to go through a lot of metacognitive activities where they are intentional about thinking about their thinking. And a lot of times I will pose um, some sort of abstract concept, some sort of quote, some sort of picture to them and ask them to sit in silence and to think about it, because we know that silence is the background of all thought. Yes. And I sh have shared with them because because too many times they spend their time either with their face on a screen or, you know, with the earbuds in. And incidentally, I've never said to them they couldn't have their phones, but it's interesting how they put them away when we're talking about that. So we come in, there's some sort of communal um, gathering, you know, so, you know, how are you doing? Let's just do some sort of a check in, how are things going? And then, you know, give them some sort of portion of the book that we actually talk about. We have that feature where they allow them to see themselves in a positive fashion. They see too much of the killing. You know, they see too much of the brutality. They see too much of that. So I give them some positive things. And so in seeing that we have some conversation, um, this last session that I went to that I actually put on LinkedIn, I featured a young man from Philadelphia, uh, Spurgo. He had a clothing line featured on the Shark Tank and just watching them watch him. And, and I said to them at the end of the presentation, you all realize that you all are not that far from 
Philadelphia. They are probably with about an hour and a half drive. And so we talked about that. And so for them being able to see themselves as a, a part of that. So I have a protocol that I use with them when they read the book. And I just simply ask them, I give them the sections to read, ask them to highlight at least two or three uh, quotes, and then we talk about it. So someone will bring forth their quote. Um, they speak for uh, two minutes uninterrupted, and the rest of us stay silent. And then I ask them to stay silent for two minutes, and then we respond to them. All right. And then I give them the final moment to go around. Very structured, but it, they understand what's going on. When I end every session, I end the sessions with them having the final word. I don't want my voice to be the last voice. I want them. So the last session that we were in, this one kid says, it just feels so good here. School should be like this. And I said, what is like this? They said, we feel safe here and we feel unjudged, right? You know, there is no right or wrong answer. I asked them to think about their thinking and they say something. I would challenge them on that. And how do you know that? What do you think about that? What do you think? Then they begin to feed off of each other and they begin to support one another. They echo, I hear what you say, but have you thought about this way? And so there is, I mean, you know, when they use the restroom, it's like, don't listen, we're not raising our hand. Can you use the restroom? If you need to use the restroom, take care of that, come back. But there is no real structure, right? We just have a conversation and that is a good thing. And so that was the like this. And so one young man even shared with me how he has been talking to his friends about signing up to come. Because even on a Saturday morning, it's like going to school because he enjoys coming so much, he's always going to be here. And, and more young men have joined the group as a result of that. And so, of course, that made me feel good that they're doing it. I mean, I travel over an hour just one way just to get to them. But I, I look forward to looking at them. And they don't know, but I've got some surprises in store for them. And I can Ooh. tell you because this will probably be this probably be aired after the fact, but I've actually <laughs> been in touch with Hill Harper, who's actually going to surprise them and actually come what? and speak with them because he did uh, retweet it. And so uh, my good frat brother, uh, Hill Harper, thank you so much, my brother, <laughs> for doing that uh, for us. And so I can't wait for him to actually beam in and, and be a part of that conversation because I want them to know that, you know, the world is theirs and all that's in it. Now we need to help them get to that point. Oh my goodness. I mean, like this one to the depth of my soul. It is so good. It is so good. Oh my God. I mean, I just hear you. I hear the engagement. I hear the excitement, the motivation. Oh man. I think this is something that every single classroom, every student needs to be able to experience because so many times learning and that critical thinking and that problem solving and that hearing out loud what you're processing and being challenged and, and challenging others. These are the skills that are required for us to sustain equitable cultures, equitable workspaces. And so you've literally laid it all out. You've given us the blueprint I'm a firm believer in book studies, and I would actually like to see a lot more learning and development organizations and departments to incorporate book studies. So here's our fun scenario for you before we begin to wrap up. You've had great success with the book study for the young boys, right? So their students, in some ways, they got to listen and do what they're told. But now you have been transplanted into a multinational corporate organization, and you are charged with fostering the same environment. The only caveat is that 90% of the people don't want to sign up. They're not engaged. And they could care less about signing up for some book study, definitely not for a year on their weekend. 
where do you start? This has been dropped on your desk. You're charged with the outcomes. What do you do first? The first thing I would do is go back to the mission and the vision of the organization and the leader. And for that to be defined, I would also work with them. And what I'm saying to you actually has been done and we've done it here. Um, We have the Board of Education actually has established uh, an equity policy, which says that what their stance is, the purpose of it and why they believe in it because we know that policy is the thou shouts of the organization. And so those are the things that if we're going to continue to enjoy the paycheck from this entity, then we're going to have policy, which is going to codify how we're going to move forward. In addition to that, we have regulations, which tells us how to enact that policy and some things that we're going to do, that we're going to make sure that we provide equitable funding, that we're going to provide professional development opportunities, that we're going to provide uh, support for what it is that we want to do. So that's what I would do. And so then I would say to them, here is something that we are going to do because the organizational has taken the stance on it. Uh, And so since that is the case, if you want to be here, here's what it's going to do. But I'm going to make sure that the training that we do is going to be engaging and that we're going to make sure that we're going to build the capacity and to sort of continue with this scenario, but actually also talk about how do you keep Uh, how do we keep ourselves sustained so that we don't get burnt out is that we make people take ownership of their learning because there are no equity experts. Even though in the office of equity, we have an executive director, I'm the senior manager, and we have five of the best equity specialists on this side of everywhere. We help them to build their own capacity. And that's the same thing that I would do there. One of the things that our um, specialists have done currently in the Office of Equity and Accelerated Student Achievement, which I would do in this corporate space, is they built a module. Kudos to what we call WQ. That is Maisha Walker. That is Katara West. That is Brian Whitley. And they created what's called the BEST module, Building Equity Stamina Training. And so we help them to look at their self look at the system and then look at the steps. So I'm going to identify myself and what are my dimensions of identity as I show up, which is going to skew how I view things and how I show up in my identity. Then I'm going to look at the systems and what systems are in place to help to either perpetuate equity, anti-racism, or what's upholding the inequity and how can I disrupt that? And then what steps do I take? We're going to continue to do professional development. We're going to continue to have book studies. We're going to continue to empower the young people. Why? Because they're going to push their parents. The students are going to push the teachers. The teachers are going to push the administrators. And then there's this groundswell to make it happen. And I would transfer that and actually do it into the corporate environment because we have got to be more than just performative in in what we're doing and just pay lip service to it. But what are the actions? And make sure that I have a budget to do it as well. And just don't put the person of color in that position, but there needs to be a team that surrounds them. But most of all, it needs to be codified in some sort of policy. Why? Because that is a thou shalt. And when someone doesn't want to do it, we have to go back to the policy, which says that we need to do it. And if they're not willing to do it, we need to promote them externally. (laughs) You got to go. (laughs) I was trying to be euphemistically correct. Listen. You got to (laughs) go. I told you guys that this was going to be a great episode. Dr. Hughes has been dropping it left, right, center, up, down, east, north, west, south, 360, 3D. (laughs) Thank you so much for these words of wisdom. There is so much practical advice and tools, examples, and scenarios that you've given us here today. And literally anybody listening to this episode who is in a diversity, equity, and inclusion role, who is in a leadership role, you heard what Dr. Hughes says. If you're in a corporate space, listen, the thou shalt is the policy. The policy is your friend. 
And so if you need further help, you can always ask for advice. You can always follow Dr. Hughes' work because this is something that has been very successful. I love to learn from people who have tried, who have implemented, who've ironed out the kinks, and they're able to teach from their place of victory. So Dr. Hughes, I want to thank you so much for being here with us on the show. Before we start to close, is there anything that you'd like to share in our closing moments with the audience? This is hard work, but it's also heart work. And so as we continue to do this work, I leave you with the words from Galatians 6 and 9, to be not weary in well-doing for in due season, you shall reap if you just don't faint. And there's going to be many days that you're, the prayer is going to be, Lord, just don't let me faint. Monique, thank you for this time uh, and allow me to share my experiences with you. I wish you all the best as well. It has been a pleasure. If anybody wants to find you, where should they connect with you? Um, they can reach out to me. Uh, my social media platform is at E-D-U-K-8-N. That's educating. They can reach me on Twitter by that uh, by that handle. Also, they can reach me uh, at LinkedIn. Um, and uh, it, it's just my name, Lorenzo Hughes. Um, if they would like to reach out to me via email, it is Dr. D-R. Lorenzo Hughes, L-O-R-E-N-Z-O-H-U-G-H-E-S, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, and then, you know, we can have a conversation or I can assist in any ways that we see. Awesome. And until next time, everyone, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. Visit clairecommunicationsolutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell, or Instagram at Clear Communication Coach. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.